Greetings and welcome everybody to another week on Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Now my guest this week is Jeff Lerner. Now if you haven't heard of Jeff, he is an incredible entrepreneur. He is the founder of one of the fastest growing education platforms in the world, Entra, which now has over 225,000 entrepreneurs on it. He has also built and scaled three businesses to over eight figures in the past decade, landed multiple times on the Inc. 5000 list, and was recently named an official member of the Forbes Business Council. Not only that, he is also the author of the new book, Unlock Your Potential, which he is proud to call the ultimate guide for creating your dream life in the modern world. Now, that all sounds really interesting and, dare I say it, exciting. But the thing that I enjoyed most about this conversation is just how honest and vulnerable Jeff was about all the challenges that he faced growing up to achieve success later in life. Now, I'm not going to wreck or spoil the conversation for you, but let me just share a couple of things. Firstly, he went through many failures. He had trauma when he was younger. In fact, he was bullied, which is something that I resonate with. But he believes a lot of these things, to some extent, were necessary so he could achieve success later in life. There are these inflection moments when like hell breaks loose, life changes, there's no returning to new normal, you're, you're, you're forever changed, right? And your arc changes. So for me, when I look at those, one was dropping out of school to become a jazz musician. Like I was 16 and I was done with the educational process and I said, okay, I'm gonna go teach myself to become a world-class musician so I can at least live a life of creative freedom. He shares his journey from broke jazz musician to award-winning entrepreneur and talks a lot about how that story has helped many, many people take control of their future, face their fears and reshape their lives. I became an entrepreneur at three years old because it's how you get to go out and live and create value and, and thrive in this world independent of the collective. And then we talk about some of the performance habits, some of the productivity things that he does today to be able to work all over the world, speak on some of the biggest stages, and also have an amazing podcast called Unlock Your Potential, where I was recently a guest. So strap yourself in. This is a very, very open, informative conversation. And as a believer that, you know, when you hear something, the right message at the right time, it can change everything. This is certainly one of those conversations where you're going to get that. In the meantime, I give you Jeff Lerner. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another episode of Scale Up. I have a gentleman on the show today. I don't know why it's taking so bloody long to get this guy on the show. In fact, I think we were talking a couple of years ago and then, then our diaries got busy. Then we collided together on this crazy platform called Clubhouse. And since then, we've been back and forth. I've been looking at what he's been creating, what he's been achieving, um, has an amazing podcast, an amazing book, and an amazing story. So I'm absolutely des delighted to have on the show with me today, Jeff Lerner. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm so glad to be here. And like you said, I'm, I'm so glad that our worlds or our orbits finally intersected in this way. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny because I we've got mutual friends around this this world that we sort of live in in terms of trying to influence and help entrepreneurs be successful. Um, but I want to kind of kick off at the very, very beginning because we've been talking about this over the last 24 hours about our stories are kind of similar. But let's go back to the very beginning, Jeff. So when did you first realize that you were an entrepreneur? Um, I don't think I so much... I don't think it started with realizing that I was an entrepreneur. I think it started with realizing that I was a misfit, okay. that I was I was not uh, pre-wired for for assembly into the matrix or the the social construct or the mainstream world. I, I I I don't know how to describe it except that at an early age I just had this sense. Actually, I do know how to describe it. It's just usually in a podcast you wait until. 10 or 20 minutes to get all like deep and vulnerable. No, no, but... no, no. We don't do that here. We, we okay. get deep, right? <laughs> so actually, you know what? I, I, I know the answer and I'll just go right there and then we'll, we'll, we'll come right out of the gate with a therapy session. I, uh, <laughs> we're going to relive some childhood trauma. No, I was, so I was born with a genetic condition called Wardenberg syndrome, okay. which if any of your audience wants to look it up, it's W-A-A-R-D-E-N-B-U-R-G. And you will see if you, if you go to the image tab in Google, you'll see a lot of 
mostly children. A lot of times they show Wardenburg children and you'll see a lot of kids that look kind of how I looked when I was a kid. And, and it's a range. Uh, it's, it does, it's a craniofacial affectation. It's got some other like deafness and some other issues too, but right. uh, basically there's just kind of a look and it's more pronounced in children. Like now as an adult, I don't, I don't think most people look at me and think, oh, he has a craniofacial disorder. So, so when you, what, what do you just unpack that again for us a bit here? Cause you, you look fine to me, man. You look like, like a normal dude. So uh, yeah, no. <laughs> okay. and, and, and it's interesting. You know, it's funny, man. It's like, I'm 43. I didn't even talk. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even like address that this was a thing in my life until the last publicly at least until maybe the last five or six years um because i had so much i carried so much shame around it because i got bullied so bad that's where i was going as is as a kid i looked kind of like maybe i had some challenges even though i was actually really smart which only made it more frustrating to be to be seen otherwise sometimes um and uh and yeah i just I, so so right out of the gate man i was like different i had this sense of being different of being i need to put my glasses back on it's really bright um <laughs> i had right out of the gate i i had this this wardenberg syndrome and uh i got just teased a lot i you know i i don't know what every elementary school is like or preschool i try not to use my small life experience sample group as as a way to draw broad negative conclusions about the world but my experience of children was very Lord of the Flies esque, and I was piggy. If you know that show, I oh, mean, man, I listen, just... my I was the same dude. I used to lock myself in a toilet cubicle, you know, when I was seven or eight years of age, because mm -hmm. every lunchtime I was bullied, like literally gang bullied, because yeah. I was this fat dude, right? Which so you, you I, and I, by the way, I, I I I coped with food too, so I was heavier as a kid. So we both literally were piggy. Yeah. Which if you've never seen, I, yeah, I mean, it's, hor flies. it's horrible. It's horrific, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And, and, and as a kid, you just, you don't have the, you don't have the frameworks to understand, you know, the psychology and the social dynamics of what's going on. It's very black or white. It's almost spiritual. It's like, Oh, that that's just evil. And that's just torturous. And you, and you don't have any coping tools other than, you know, whatever you find to indulge in and you stuff yourself with ice cream or something it just was terrible and so i just sort of drew this conclusion and i was an only child and both my parents worked till like 6 or 6 30 every night so from for at least 12 hours of every day i was alone in the world as a kid who thought that the world was the enemy or felt it i shouldn't even say i thought it i felt it and so you can see how i developed this sense of like i don't belong here i used to have dreams as a kid about aliens coming down to earth and leaving me here really? and that I was, and that they would come back for me someday because I was not actually of this place. I, as a kid, I created this, this sense. I don't think I believed it literally, but I just created this sense. Like I am not of this place. This they place they, is not they, for um, me. They left their glasses with you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> for those of you who are going to watch this on YouTube later on, um, Jeff has got the coolest um, uh, glasses in the world. But anyway. Yeah. And, and by the way, I have no, I have no, uh, although Dave's a friend, I have no stake in this. I'll tell you, these are true, the true dark of blue light filtering glasses by Dave Asprey. And they're the best ones out there. Uh, awesome. In, well, in my so, experience. so let's keep going on this. I love the fact we've jumped into this straight away because, okay, yeah. because one of my beliefs is trauma and voids and these sort of things. I know we share a similar perspective mm -hmm. on this they can create amazing turnarounds, amazing success off the back of it. So, so time check for a second, what age? Are we talking seven, eight, preschool? Oh, I, I remember being three years old and sitting wow. alone in the grass, wa watching all the other kids play on the playground. And you're by yourself, man, because you've got, you said your parents aren't around, brothers yeah, and yeah, sisters, and, anything like and that? I, or? No, 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 and I was an only child and oh, my parents God. worked, so. So it's just a lot of isolation, a lot of time to myself. And, and you're right, though, you know, uh, price tags, assets and liabilities, man, like every every life experience, it, there's a there's a line in the assets column and a line in the liabilities column. And the liabilities are, are easy to identify in this. But the assets, the ability to self-soothe, just although although initially it was with food and I had to come up with better, better mechanisms, but the 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 ability to to not only endure but learn to really enjoy very very long stretches of concentrated time by myself mm. you know how many people in this world can never unlock their potential because they just can't let themselves be alone long enough to do the work See, that that in itself let's delve into that a bit because i say one of my superpowers 
from my upbringing was the fact that I, I got really good at reading people because I saw so mm. much turmoil around the edges that I had to read people early. And I just, I just picked this, this insight from it, but the idea of being alone and having to be comfortable in your own presence. And that, that today is hard, right? Look at all these people who are distracted by technology and stuff like that. So, so that's something that you must have grounded into yourself at a young age. It must be serving you in some way now. Oh, it's, it's serves me in tremendous ways. I mean, I go back to like, there've been, we talked about this yesterday and for, since we're going to keep referring to it, I might as well tell everyone. <laughs> was say, yeah, Nick was it. on my podcast yesterday and we are essentially continuing the, the same we'll give conversation. We unlock your potential podcast, That's, right? And yes. uh, we unlocked some of my potential. No, <laughs> we talked about my story to help me help people. So we're going to reciprocate a bit on this show today. Um, yes. And so as we were talking about, there's, there's kind of these critical junctures you might call them like inflection points in the in the graph of our lives and and of course you know everybody has them i i have them too um and uh my, my friend bruce filer actually calls them transitions he has a great book about it by the way you should read that plug for cool. and, and but, <laughs> since we're plugging and by the way if, if you don't know who bruce filer is go listen to his interview on unlock your potential but anyway uh <laughs> there are these there's these there are these inflection moments when like hell breaks loose life changes there's no returning to new normal you're 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 forever changed right and your arc changes so for me when i look at those one was dropping out of school to become a jazz musician like i was 16 and i was done with the educational process and i said okay i'm gonna go teach myself to become a world-class musician so i can at least live a life of creative freedom well that would be really hard to do if I wasn't very good at being alone. I, I literally sat and I dropped out of high school. And instead of, you know, partying or getting into a gang, I practiced piano 12 hours a day by myself. And in three years, I was a working professional. Right. So that was one example um, when I had to reset my career a few times, even four years ago, when I started my current business, Entra, for almost a year. I was running around by myself, all, you know, 10, 12 hours a day with a phone just creating the initial base of content that grew into, you know, now what's now a, a, a big business. And, and I, I never had that like itch of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm bored or I'm lonely or I'm isolated. I need to go, I need to go associate just to fill time and space. Like, no, I, I if I feel like I'm doing something that matters, I think I could be alone for like 20 years. Let's unpack fine. that for people here. So is that, is that incredible amounts of focus? And the ability of being able to stay, you know, again, present on one task for, for longer periods of time so, than what most people do. Yeah. So it's interesting, this word focus. Um, I actually believe that the default state of, of the mind is to be focused on magical things. You know, when we were kids, we didn't have a hard time focusing. We, would, we could get lost in play for days, focusing on the magic of the world we were in or the fantasy we were playing through or whatever, right? Like, I think it's the default state of the mind to, I, I actually think that, I mean, I don't need to get like religious or spiritual here, but like, why the hell at some point did some creative energy in the world hijack the purely evolutionary biological process that was producing species after species of like, you know, non-sentient, non-future projecting, non-self-aware, you know, vegetables. Well, it's addiction and to mammals, right? Addiction and then, to and then all of a sudden so. there was a, there was a fork in the evolutionary chain that where we produce these human beings that have things like imaginations and the desire to create a better future and all kinds of like social attributes that can't be explained purely through bio, bio, biological, you know, self-perpetuation, right? Why? Because we're supposed, the human condition, I believe, is is there's got to be some sort of experiment or teleology. Like we're supposed to care about the things that we are the only species on earth that we can care about. Like, like, like fantasy and imagination and creation and and morality and helping our fellow man and doing I, I can know. give you the basic answer to this without going through um a, a book that you okay. should read tell me <laughs> yeah, yeah tell me tell comes, me i mean i have back, my own theory but what's your answer well it comes back to the fact that in, innovation and imagination is risk to uprisings and revolts 
So if you go back to when media was created, like the town crier and all that sort of stuff, right? surfs in the field and all those sort of things, you kind of didn't want people to be too imaginative. You didn't want them to think too right. much because it was a threat to the hierarchy that was already established, the rulers. So, so it started back then. And, you know, we could get really esoteric about this, well, right? And talk so, about what's going on now with, with mobile phones and social media. Yeah, but- yeah, which I, which I, you know, we don't need to become the, the cultural, you know, reporters to the world, right? I think everybody knows what's going on. But I guess my, my point is humans live in this tension, right? And, and, and you know, my, one of my favorite quotes is by Ayn Rand. She said, uh, civilization is the process of setting man free from men. I love that. And I swear for the, my entire life as a man, and I mean human, yeah. I have been trying to be to liberate myself from the collective. The collective, like love is an individual emotion. Hate tends to be a group emotion. Like the collective is always has always been my nemesis, right? And ever, you know, I was three years old in the schoolyard getting bullied by the collective, right? So anyway, this all started because you asked me when I became an entrepreneur. I became an entrepreneur at three years old because it's how you get to go out and live and create value and and thrive in this world independent of the collective. When did you recognize that? At what point did you correlate that back looking as you look back now? 16, I dropped out to become an artist. Yeah. And I don't actually consider that anything has really changed. I just, my canvas is now business. It used to be sound. Got it. See, we jumped straight in. Yeah. We, <laughs> we actually, yeah, we, we, yeah we, got, we got from three to 16 pretty fast. Then. Let's, let's get into some, uh, some more of these inflection points. Because I know from your earlier business career, you didn't kind of land with success straight away. No. <laughs> And I think that's this is an understatement. I'm being nice. Um, and it's an important lesson, I think, for people listening to this show and to your show and everything else. So let's let's go through that journey. So you've gone into the world of business. You've you've started a few things. You've started, you know, take us through that that journey of your career there. Sure, sure. And if somebody wants, you know, in, in my book, I take the time to actually go through the at least the 11 most memorable failures in my 20s. I mean, if that tells you anything. <laughs> there were 11 that were that were actually like substantive enough to write about in my 20s. So yeah, I dropped out at 16. And the first, really the first probably five years was just, pro- first of all, uh, I made a deal with my parents. Hey, I'm, I've still got two years left of what would have been high school. And you were already kind of going to be on the hook to support me through high school. So if I agree to just practice all the time, will you just support me like you would have and give me a couple years of runway to, to get good enough to make a living? And they said, yes. And they even bought me a piano. And so uh, my, what would have been my junior and senior years of high school was just literally me in my living room practicing piano all day while my parents were at work. And so, uh, and then, you know, from there, it took a year or two to kind of get start getting some gigs, establish myself as a decent player and get to where my parents retired, moved away. And I was able to start making a living by like 19. I was supporting myself as a musician. Um, and so then I realized, hey, I'm not the best musician because I'm not the best pianist because I started so late. I didn't start till I was 16. Um, but I'm pretty good at getting us gig. Like even though I'm my band isn't the best, we seem to have the most gigs because I'm pretty good at networking and schmoozing with the club owners. And frankly, I was wor- I was always worried about getting kicked out of the band because I didn't think I was that good. But I'm like, if I'm the one getting us gigs, then they'll keep me in the band. And so <laughs> Uh, by so my where, early, were, you, were you good? I mean, like, you know, could you have continued that lane or was that? I was, I would say every, every literally every month I, w- I should have been awarded most improved. Like I wasn't good in, like objectively, but I was getting so much better so fast because I had this obsessive work ethic and, and a decent amount of natural talent that I was slowly teasing out um, that I think everybody recognized, okay, it's worth giving this kid some time because he's getting so much better so, so fast. Got it. And, uh, and eventually I, I got really good. Yeah. I mean, eventually I ended up getting a, a, a degree and, you know, in was the first chair of pianist in the jazz orchestra at the university of Houston for 10 years, or, or I guess for about six years, 10 years, I was in college for 10 years, which even that I, I got good enough to get into college as a pianist, even though I had dropped out of high school. Um, and they, wa- they waived the, the high school diploma requirements because they wanted me as a piano player. So yeah, I got pretty good, but, but anyway, entrepreneurially, it was my early 20s when I realized that like, you know, the people side of business, social skills, being able to follow up with with club managers and actually make sure we got paid. Like 
like half of the nightclub business operates, at least in, in a certain tier of it, operates on the assumption that by the end of the night, the band will be too drunk to even come get paid. And I was the sober <laughs> one who was go, who was chasing down the club manager at 2.30 in the morning, who's like literally hiding, pretending he's counting the book, doing the books or like he always had something to do. And I would barge in and be like, bro, we're, we're loaded up. It's 2.30 in the morning. We got to go. I got school in the morning. We need to get paid. And, uh, and so, you know, I sort of developed a set of skills and ultimately my first business was a booking agency, helping other bands get gigs and then not get screwed on those gigs. And that was, that was venture number one. And then in my twenties, I had literally had 11 of them and you're talking about inflection points, probably, you know, I would say that for the first half of that stretch, let's say from the time I was 19 to the time I was 29 was this decade of, of a string of failures. The first half, I would characterize them as low-grade failures, meaning not much ventured, not much lost, right? Were, they, were they side hustle type of things? You were just kind yeah, of- Yeah, yeah, side hustle things while I was going to school yeah. and playing gigs and teaching piano lessons, right? Okay. And then in my mid-20s, I got in with this one booking agency in Houston that- uh, they booked what they what was called the society circuit, which was all the like really wealthy people, the galas, the fundraisers, the the country club parties, and 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 the house parties of billionaires. Okay. And so my mid about twenty four years old, I I started getting these gigs where I would go in and I played for I mean names people know Tillman Fertitta who owns the Houston Rockets. I played it. I used to play at his house. Bob McNair, who's passed away, but he owned the Houston Texans, used to play at his house. Jim Crane, who owns the Houston Astros, used to play at his house. Charles Butts, who owns H-E-B Grocery Store, he's worth $11 billion now, used to play at his house. And so I'm I'm this $40,000 a year, if I'm lucky, broke, struggling piano player kid who's going into, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, $15, 20000000 million mansions, which would be worth probably $50 million now, playing on... $300,000 Bosendorfer pianos while 20 centimillionaires and billionaires are served dinner. And I, and I'm like, and I actually got to talk to some of these people and, uh, and, and it was crazy. Cause I'm just, like, just explain the impact that that had on where you are now. Yeah. Being oh, in that it, environment. It, 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 it was the original seed planting. I mean, I remember, I remember specific conversations and I would go home and I would write them down because I had this sense that, okay, this is a very unique experience. Like I need to get, I need to squeeze all the juice out of these opportunities because most 24 year old musicians don't get to hang out. Like, like I played, remember James Baker, former secretary of state for the yep. U S I played his 80th birthday party with like him and nine of his friends. And I, I was in the room and like went on break. And what a network. Me, I mean, what a network to be associated with. Yeah, and, and, and as they you let said me beforehand, sit at the table and yeah, mo most, most musicians probably would have gone in there, played their set, got paid, walked out. I'm, I'm sensing that you, you, you hung around, you spoke to I these did. guys. Yes. And, and sometimes it was a solo gig and sometimes it was like a trio or a quartet and the other musician, I remember watching them. They could, it was like their pants were on fire. As soon as the song ended for a break, <laughs> They were in the garage or out in the driveway, hanging out with the caterers on their smoke break, getting a drink, whatever, whatever they could do to. I mean, I remember thinking like, like we don't, we don't, there's no like slavery in this world, but you're basically acting like a slave. Like, oh, I, I got to get away from them rich folk and go hang out in the back with the help. Well, it's the, th it's the thermostat thing, isn't it? Like, you know, yes. you, you feel so yes. uncomfortable in an environment that you're not around, but you didn't, right? You saw it as an opportunity as opposed to something that was going to, you know, pull you apart or make you feel conflicted. Yeah, I did. And I was like, and, and what I realized is, hey, these these guys, these 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 ultra wealthy, successful people, they're creatives. I, I remember mm. like I would listen to them and I was like, hey, they're kind of like me. They just have a lot more money. So like they have they have what I want. They have freedom. They have the creative outlets. They have the ability to do the, the things they care about care about and they believe make an impact in the world they just also know how they're going to pay their rent at the end of the month and so i was i need to get around them and i as much as i could while still being professional and respectful and not overstepping i started trying to mingle with and network with with centimillionaires and billionaires and i had some incredible conversations that completely changed the trajectory of my life 
because they just made me believe in a different set of possibilities. Yeah, fantastic. I love that. We, we touched on this when we spoke on, on your show, same environment thing for me, right? Be around people that were just the total opposite of what I had growing up. It didn't sound like you had anything really. I mean, I'm sure you had friends and whatever else, but once you start to have those conversations and you start to see, well, there's two things I found, right? One is these people are normal people. Right. They're normal yes. people that that have just operated maybe in a different way to the opportunities that have presented themselves. You know, they've we used the term yesterday about preparation and opportunity and the definition of that back to luck. Right. So take us forward from here. Right. So yeah. your 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 perspective has changed. You're thinking bigger now than what you you thought beforehand. Yeah. Yes. So so let's talk a little bit about identity. So what's yeah. the identity shift that's happening at this point? The, the identity is, hey, because remember, my identity is a misfit. I don't, mm. literally, I don't fit. If I try to fit, I will miss. And uh, and that was from the bullying and that was from the really defining myself. And But but it, it, I think it was part of, that That was sort of the final clicking into, no, it wasn't the final actually. I, there was therapy in my 30s and there've been a lot of clicking into place moments. But I think that was the first time I really started to see being different as something that could lead to something wonderful. Um, it wasn't mm. just a it wasn't just a, a pathological condition that I had to manage for the rest of my life. It, it actually could lead to because you say they're they're normal people. They are, but also they're not by their own choice. They have all the same potential as everybody else. But I mean, I'll give an example, and I talk about this in my book. Bob McNair, owner of the Houston Texans. Uh, if you read his story, he failed, I believe it was 18 times. And he did not start the company that led to his billions until he was 44. I'm 43. So I can think about my life and imagine what if I had failed half a dozen more times and for another 10 years, would I have still kept going? Well, if I was Bob McNair, I would have, because he didn't even start co-generation until he was 44. And he had 18 failures prior to that. So they are normal, but they also have, I don't know if it's a gear or a setting or just the right amount of trauma that they have to work that a little bit harder to overcome than the next guy. Like what and, and every story is different, right? But what what I what I realize is these guys are great. And, and it's kind of like if you, maybe this isn't the healthiest example, but if anybody has seen The Last Dance, the, the documentary about Michael Jordan. I love that. Well, I, I love basketball, right? So it doesn't take much it, for me to watch something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know how he was so good at like transmuting pain or insults or, or what, he would sometimes create pain just so he could transmute it into drive. You know, and these people were very, very good at using their life experience as fuel to push them in the direction. And, but I think more than anything, I really, you know how there's this stereotype of like eccentric billionaires, like they're all so idiosyncratic or eccentric. You know what a synonym for idiosyncratic and eccentric is? It's no. just themselves. Yeah, they're just, just, they're themselves. Just, just being themselves, whereas a lot of people yeah. are not. Right? Well, yeah, and that's the thing. We're all idiosyncratic. We're all eccentric. And if you have what they call FU money, then you'll get to the where you'll get to the place you're not embarrassed about it anymore. But what I started to connect was these eccentricities and the, these idiosyncrasies and just these the, the fact that they do kind of have a different vibe about them is like I connected that to their success. And I think from then on, I started giving myself permission to be a little more self-expressed, to live a little more out loud and not see it as a liability like I had felt it was well, it's, it's, earlier. It's being unleashed. And to some extent, you mentioned the point around when we're kids. Right. You know, we go around, we, we, we look at the wonder and the joy in the world and we kind of just do stuff that if an adult did that, the general, you know, the masses, as you spoke about beforehand, would strike you down. That's not acceptable. But if a kid mm -hmm. does it, it's fine. What I found with um, very wealthy, ultra high net worth billionaires that I've been around is they kind of act a little bit like kids. They kind of totally. just do their thing. Right. Because yeah. like, they, they don't they don't really care and they're just going to be who they are. They're going to show up how they are. And there's there's a certain admiration around that but there's also a thing that draws you towards those people like a magnet yeah and by the way you know who else does that like the rest of us do it we're just a lot slower to catch up we'll do it when we're 85 <laughs> and we don't feel like we have anything to lose and we start pulling our pants up to our nipples because it's more comfortable that way and our belly keep you know keeps it keeps it tight and like we just start doing all this quirky weird stuff once we're old enough where we feel like it's not going to cost us anything 
billionaires just gave themselves permission in, I think in many ways, a lot younger. And, and, and I just, yeah, I kind of the same thing in my mid twenties, I think, and this is what I say is like, I was lucky enough to have suffered enough at the hands of others by my mid twenties that I recognized it is just so futile to try to please people and to try to be accepted. It's so pointless. It's never going to win. There's a lot more of them than there are of me. There's a lot more people trying not to accept me than there are me trying to be accepted. So maybe I should just take a cue from these billionaires and stop caring and just do me. And life got really awesome from there. What was, slight slight segue, what was the lowest point through this journey? To, to where we are now. What was the I'm, lowest I'm glad point? you asked that because I think you just you just sort of checked what I said because it's not like I had this epiphany of like, oh, I'm going to be myself and and not care anymore. And then life was just this like straight shot upwards because um, no, it, it continued to vacillate up and down. And, and, and I would say late twenties was low point. I mean, one of the, one of the price tags along the way in my twenties had been relationships. I, mm -hmm. I actually was married twice in my twenties, right. both unsuccessfully, both lasted only, I think one lasted a year, one lasted two years. Um, and so the low point, and, and look, I was a musician. I got home from work at four o'clock in the morning, you know, after, being surrounded by a party atmosphere and smelling like smoke and probably some booze and sleeping till, you know, and then, well, actually in my case, I didn't sleep all day because I had to be up. I had to go to school. I had to teach lessons. I was hardly ever home. Like this was not a good setup for, for, a, to build a stable marriage. But anyway, I had two failed marriages in my twenties, late twenties was definitely rock bottom, uh, failed marriage number two. But at the same time, uh, because once I started becoming more, unleashed i also started taking bigger risks and so in my and also uh the credit markets in the early 2000s allowed unqualified people to be somewhat reckless with borrowed money if as we remember so yeah. by my late by 2008 i had borrowed like half a million dollars to open these franchise restaurants that i had no qualification to do um and and then those went under i was $495,000 in debt. I had to move out of my apartment, move in with my 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 estranged wife's parents. Even though she was she and I were separating and ultimately going to get a divorce, I still had to go live with her parents for a while because I lo we lost our home or our apartment. Uh I also gained a bunch of weight. I got really depressed and and that that was clearly rock bottom for me. Wow. So, let's rebuild. Let's, let's, let's step. So when, you, when you're in that position, well, we, we know you have, we haven't got to yeah. the end game yet. Good, <laughs> I'm going to talk about what you've created now. I'm going to tell you a little story about that as well. Um, but let's rebuild. Cause like right now, you know, you've got a very, very successful business. You've done some pretty amazing things, which I said, we'll get to, but where did you start when you were at that rock bottom point? What was the first thing you did? Um, <clears throat> thankfully credit, the credit markets had not, it's so interesting because we're seeing a lot of the same stuff play out right now. People are getting their credit card limits lowered. They're getting their loans called. Um, yep. Same thing happened after the Great Recession in 2008. So 2008, I was 29 years old. I still had one credit card with a few thousand bucks on it. And if I, and here's the, this is, this is real. If I had waited six months, uh, the banks would have, would have, taken all my available credit and I would have had nothing to do anything with. Right. But at the time I had two, two sort of wells that I could draw from. They were small wells, but they were there. One was I had a credit card with a few thousand bucks on it. Basically everything, it, it actually had like a $25,000 limit, but I had bought my wife's engagement ring on it like four years before and still never managed to pay it off. So I, I just had a few thousand dollars on that credit card. Um, and then uh, I also, when the restaurants closed, I knew that if I deposited the last few days worth of till money into the bank, because I was in default on the loan, they would freeze the account. Like I would lose the money. So instead I stuffed a few days worth of cash into a backpack or actually it was a paper bag in a backpack and took it home. So I'm sitting at home. I'm, de I'm dead broke. I know like the Rome is burning all around me, so to speak, but I have a credit card with a few thousand bucks and I have $14,000 cash in a greasy paper bag in my closet. And uh, that was that was my 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 rebuilding money, right? So I did what any sane person would do. I found a guy on the internet 
who had a course on what turned out to be affiliate marketing. And I sent him and I went and got a, a cashier's check and sent him 10 grand. So, well, to be clear. So first I bought a $395 course on with the credit card. And then I found a guy that had like a mentorship program and I took 10 of my $14,000 in cash, converted it to a cashier's check and mailed it to some guy in California that I'd never met. You know, well, okay. So perfectly pause, reasonable. Pause, well, choice. yeah, it's, it's, it is, <laughs> it is in our world now and people right. do it all the time, but you know, back then, maybe not so. Let's just talk about the psychology at this point. Yeah. So where, I mean, I, I actually is, is don't it, know if I want to talk about that psychology. <laughs> well, I know, I'm sorry, but you're on the show and it's called scale up and it's about scaling up your life. And we're going through the whole journey of yours. Perfect. So is it, is it desperation, optimism, uh, belief? What's the mix? At yeah, this point I'm, gonna, when you... I'm actually, I'm going to, I'm going to do myself a solid and not allow the audience to characterize it as a reckless, desperate Hail Mary. Now, yes. Whether they want to believe me about that, I'm at least going to make my stand here. Sure. I had, I, by this point, I had such a deep conviction that I was on this journey of self-discovery and, and finding my way. You know, Tim Story calls it like building your spot. Like I just had this sense that like I am forging my unique place in the world and this is just the shit that I am destined to go through to get there. I really, I, I, I mean, because people like this is the the crucible moment. People ask me about all the time, like, how were you able to act in 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 what should have been like a, a crippling, paralyzing level of fear and anxiety in your life? And I just literally was not afraid. I believed that. Oh, okay. I just had this sense, but and I think a lot of it. You know, I, the reason I wrote the story about Bob McNair in my book is eighteen failures. I remember having this vision in my mind of like, okay, Bob McNair, he pulled his slingshot back 18 times before he let it go. And if he hadn't pulled it back 18 times, then when he let it go, it wouldn't have shot so far. And so for me, it was like, oh, this is one more pullback. What's next? Because whether it was the next one or the next next one, I didn't know, but I knew if I kept going, I'd get there. So I just... I mean, that's the answer is I, I, I guess it was probably more belief than anything. No, I, I, that's what I, that's what I was kind of expecting and hoping you would say, yeah. because, but the key thing for people listening to this is where did you dig deep to get that from? If you look backwards now a little bit at this point in time, was this part of who you were? Had you recreated yourself? Was there a point like in my story where I said, you know what? I ain't going to go any lower. I'm better than this. Yeah. You know, yeah. I have I standards. Think, I, I think a lot of it is that you mentioned standards. I think a lot in terms of currency, like what was my currency? If my currency was money, I would have been crippled by the fear of going deeper into a negative balance sheet, right? My currency was never money. My currency was freedom. And I remember mm, thinking, okay. so when I, was, when I was a teenager, I remember reading Dostoevsky and thinking, and I remember there, they, in Dostoevsky talks about Siberian debtor's prison. And I was like, debtor's prison? What's this? And, and I learned about it. And they used to have it in the UK. They used to have it in, like, in olden times, if you owed somebody enough money, they would put you in prison. And it, was, and it wasn't prison like we talk about it. It was like a forced labor camp where you'd probably die. And I remember thinking, like, we don't have that. Like, in this world, you know, it's the difference between civil and criminal. Like you can mess yourself up financially pretty much as badly as you want. And they're never going to lock you away and throw away the key. Like, so what, what I sort of dissociated this concept of, of like, like I actually looked around at people, not the billionaires, billionaires were free, but the middle class, they're, they're in a prison, man. Middle class is a prison. And so and, and, and the deeper, the deeper, the darker, the dungeon is the more they're obsessed with trying to climb this chase for money is the ultimate prison in this world, right? Like we've people think, oh, that we abolished slavery. No, we didn't. We just got a lot better at hiding it. We, <laughs> we start teaching you as a small child, how to grow up and be a slave, uh, be a slave inside a cage that we never even have to lock the door on you because you'll just sit there your whole life. And I never had, I, I don't want to say I never had that. I think I broke out of that. When I dropped out of high school, that was my Jerry Maguire moment of like, I am out on this nonsense. 
I want to be free. I want to create. If I'm going to be oppressed and rejected and 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 marginalized by the by the collective because I have a disorder or a condition or I'm just weird and people don't like me, then like fuck, at least I'm going to at least I'm going to ha have some fun. At least I'm going to be free. At least I'm going to do it my way. Look, I you nobody's broker than a jazz musician. I know how to do broke. I was broke my whole decade of my 20s. I was like a starving artist, right? So then what? You can't be more starving than starving. Like just because just because in some computer somewhere it said that I had a bunch of debt, that didn't really change my life. Like a musician, we can always like I'll go live on a cruise ship. They will always let a musician live on a cruise ship for free if he just plays at night, right? Like that's why I got into music, is because it's like this, it's this ultimate lifeline of like you'll you'll probably never be rich, but but you'll always have something that's valuable enough to someone somewhere that they won't let you die if right. you can play a tune, right? Let's, and so let's, let's draw a line here for a second. Let's draw sure, a line sure. for everyone listening, right? So I want to kind of go back about a minute. So I've shared my story many times on this show. And the reason, the reason I wanted to get Jeff on the show is, is that last couple of minutes just then, right? The idea of people being in a prison, let's just play with that for a second, right? Because it's an important point here around choices that we make and, you know, making decisions that really serve you and serve others because you're hundred percent right. And I haven't heard it expressed as eloquently as that before. But a lot of people are just living this life, which isn't a life at all. They're stuck in mediocrity, right? And you know what? Having someone like Jeff on the show is really a, a call that if you're in that place, maybe it's time to think a little bit differently, right? And right now, you know, we could talk about this in a whole nother podcast. Right now, the world of opportunity that's in front of a lot of people and, and us included in this is, is incredible. So yeah. I just wanted to make a distinction there because it was a very powerful way that you expressed it. Yeah, and 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 so I want to add, a, I think, a nuance to this conversation, which is, in my late twenties, I was getting divorced and I had no kids. So someone might say, you know, you had the luxury to have that that perspective and that approach to life because you didn't have any dependents. But what about, you know, when you're grown up with responsibilities and married with children, you don't get to live that way anymore, right? It's still a prison. It's still a prison. And, and if you, you know, I had, I'm, I'm remarried now, third time's the charm. We've been married for a decade. We have four kids, three of whom I adopted that were hers when we met. And then one more that we added that's, that's biologically ours. I mean, they're all mine, but um, I've had multiple conversations with her at different points where I have reminded her that, hey, when we met, I told you money is not my currency. And I'll, I always know that I have a basic set of skills, which mean that our children will never starve and that we'll never have to live on the streets. And I will never shirk my responsibility to keep us off the streets. But that's the only, that's the, that's, that's the floor of my promise. I'm not promising you a mansion. I'm not promising you a Lexus. I'm not promising you Botox once a month. I'm just promising you that I won't let our kids die and, I, and, and I'll, I'll keep you safe enough that your like, odds of being raped are very low. That's literally the conversation I've had multiple times with my wife as a, as a check-in to say, hey, we're still in this, right? And she's, she's in it with me, which that allows me to take risks that are why I don't have to worry about those things. So let's because the now, middle class is the one right now in the world today, the middle class, the ones that are scared to have those conversations with their spouses and say, no, no, I, I promise you the two car garage. I promise you the 3000 square foot house that costs $900 a month to keep cool in the summers. I promise you those things. And because of those promises and the fear of saying, maybe this isn't practical, they live in that prison and they will their whole life. And based on where the world is headed, I think that, I think the house of cards is going to crumble and, and they're not going to be able to keep those promises. How important to you was not having a currency focused on money, do you think, to the success that you've oh, created it's, it's, today? It's, it's the defining choice of my life. Let's now- that, along, along with, with my choice of, of wife. Okay. It's, it's time to kind of um, let uh, the audience know kind of what you have created. We've held back on sure. this piece. So sure. today, today as you're here, what have you got? What have you created you know, around so, you business-wise, all of that? Yeah. So, so from that, that quasi-reckless- $10,000 coaching investment to learn affiliate marketing. Over the next five years with that business, I generated about $10 million in commissions. 
uh, got out. And, and some of that was, I had some partnerships and stuff like, but anyway, it was, it was a lot of money. It was good money. I paid off my half a million dollars in debt. I, I rebuilt my life. I got, I got done with my divorce. I moved to Montana for a while, did some fly fishing and skiing. Then I moved to New York for a while. Then I met my wife now moved, moved out here, uh, got married, started playing dad was like an overnight dad. I went for, I went from bachelor divorce bachelor to uh, dad with three kids in like, you know, a day. And, and kind of found this new groove of like, and, and everybody says I adopted them. I look at it as they adopted me. Like I was the stray that they took in. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and started building this life and, and things started getting really wonderful. So I, but I, I kind of wound the affiliate marketing down. I started a digital agency, uh, for again, about five years. Um, and, and, and I think those five years are really when it all started to come together. I scaled the agency up to about 6 million a year in revenue, I sold the agency in 2018 uh, for multiple seven figures. It wasn't a huge exit, but you know that coupled with the income that I'd been making, like like I, I was 39 and I was like, well, should I retire? I mean, I could live a nice life from here. And um, and but also during those five years, my wife and I we did a ton of therapy. I mean, like like I studied therapy the way like Stephen Hawking studied physics, or, or I poured myself into it. I just loved it. What, what is, and, I mean, just for everyone listening, because there are were, there were different expressions of therapy. So from your definition of what it is for you and what the impact it's had, just, just give us a bit more on that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, you know, there's, there's therapy and there's therapists and no, yeah. nothing, no one can spoil therapy like a bad therapist. And I tried a few, but, <laughs> but man, we found just an, an incredible, you know, therapist, mentor, parental figure. I mean, there's a lot of different words I could use to describe his impact in my life. Um, in fact, the, one of the, my biggest regrets is that I forgot to put him in the dedication to my book. I can't wait for the second edition to get printed so I can thank him in my book properly. Like uh, he was just incredible. But so we use cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, CBT, which is kind of a cluster of modalities. But but basically what it comes down to is if you if you start to understand yourself well enough and 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 I really I really frame it as just a, a the sufficient discipline of asking the question why to yourself. Why do I do this? What, what, what's, you know, understanding, not causality from the standpoint of like, let me relive my past constantly and wallow in it and be one of those annoying people. But if I can find these threads, I can really start to understand myself and, and then start to unravel the parts of myself that I don't like. And actually there's, there's methods where over time it takes a ton of time. That's why a lot of people don't get results. I think either they don't have a great uh, leader therapist, or they mm -hmm. just don't give it the time, but you can literally rewire yourself neurally. You can reconnect, you know, they call them neural grooves, right? You can regroove your records so that it, it stops skipping. And, uh, I did it for, I, I would guess I've probably spent 5,000 hours, thousands of hours in, in that office. I did group therapy. I did, uh, individual therapy. I did couples therapy. I would go to these groups where there were, there were people that had been like traumatized and abused. So I live in Southern Utah and there's a community not that far from here of, uh, of polygamists, like, like Warren Jeffs, the, the kind of the most famous crazy polygamist actually used to be based like a hundred miles from here. And then he moved to, I think Texas or whatever, but, but anyway, so there's, there's these people that escaped those cultures and and they would end up in the same therapist's office. And so I would do group therapy with, with people that had been like forced to marry when they were 11 years old. And they'd been like raped by their uncles. And and I start so I started not just to process my own trauma. Sorry, I get I'm getting like emotional talking about it, but I started to learn how to facilitate the healing of others just as a participant, not because I had any special skills that you learn, but because I learned how to, I learned how to love well. And I learned how to empathize and I learned, and I, I sort of started to experience this energy of the human condition. That's like, if you'll just make the space safe enough and start to trust that this energy exists, it becomes, it's like a drug with no side effects. You get to where you can start to live in such a pure joy every day and 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 that joy is what's underneath pain. I think pain exists so that we realize the intensity of which we're capable of having feelings at all. And the reason pain exists is so that we go, oh, if I could feel that much, if that's the negative intensity of which feeling is possible, there must be an inverse possibility. There must be a positive of equal intensity. 
And the way to it is through the pain. Mm. That's the portal. And so I, in my, that, that's the, the non-business part of my experience in my 30s is I started tapping into this, this experience. And I realized what human connection is about. The reason the collective exists is not so we can create all these rules and control you and ensnare you and, and judge you. It's because love, which is individual to individual, the collective is just about getting people enough, people together in proximity so that they can experience love between individuals. And I don't mean necessarily sexual love, it can be agape love, it can be fraternal love, but that's the point of the collective. We're not meant to be alone, but we're not meant to think like a group. We're meant to be groupings of individuals in proximity so that we can love. And when so that had... became the experience, the defining experience of my life, I started being able to build better companies. I started becoming a leader that people actually wanted to work for. I, I was able to have an exit. And then four years ago, I decided to take everything I've learned, not just about business and scaling businesses, but also about the personal side of things and, and the, the energetic way of being in this world that I believe in now, like that's my faith, uh, and, and, and package it into an entrepreneurial training program. And it didn't start that way. It started as just me making some videos on social media and being like, here's some stuff I learned. And people started sharing the videos and I realized there was there was momentum and kind of a critical mass building. So I created a course. We started selling the course. That that was 272,000 students ago. And now we have one of the biggest education platforms in the world. Called Entra, if we get it's it called right. Called Entra, yeah. So let's go, back, let's go back one step. Um, so belief, belief in yourself, got to rock bottom, invest $10,000 in that program. But the, the thing that's really interesting to me is you know, obviously the therapy, as you call it, or that, that dealing with stuff, right. That was there was the thing that just unleashed and unlocked your potential. Right. Yeah. So you see why yesterday on my show, I said, our stories are so, yeah. so similar. Well, it's interesting. I haven't had any therapy, which is why I'm sort of probing this a little bit, even okay. though I've had quite a lot of trauma. So question I've got for you is a personal question, just cause I'm, I'm curious now, what was, what were you feeling like? in those years, those early 30 years that, you know, drew you towards therapy or the feeling that you needed to kind of explore, you know, what, what obviously you went through, what was the feeling that unlocked that for you? Yeah. So uh, the, I'll answer the question, but first I want to say, I think that for a lot of people, if you, if you will, if you will change the moniker from therapy to facilitated personal development, you'll have a very different yeah, sense I was gonna of say, what, I, what it's going to be because because i mean i i've definitely lent into personal development like yeah like yeah you excessively right yeah. Um, yeah so imagine just going to sit in an office w with somebody for an hour that's kind of leading you and questioning you to help you develop personally that's that's what therapy is right, right okay and and also in the modern world you know the dsm the diagnostic statistical manual of psychiatry like all of mental, the mental health conversation is really a mental sickness conversation. It's, mm. it's a pathology mm. conversation, but when you reframe it as like, you know, and there's a whole movement called positive psychology and, and my therapist is not expressly a positive psychologist, but he's very grounded in positive psychology, the work of Martin Seligman and stuff. And it's like, Hey, let's find what's unique and awesome about you and like expand it. You know, that's that's where it's it's a blurred line between what's therapy and what's personal development, depending on how you as the patient choose to approach it. Right. Yeah, so anyway, I, I'm not dodging your question, but I just wanted to clarify that. Um, I think, again, what 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 destigmatized it and made me feel there are two things that I think got me into that therapist's office. One was this experience that I'd already had of like, I don't need to be afraid of being unique and different. Those are actually my strengths if I'll develop them. And so therefore, and, 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 and so that's part of it. And I think the other side of that is like, a lot of people don't want to go to therapy because they don't want to think there's something wrong with them. But I'd already decided that what's wrong with me is what's right with me. It's just my perspective. And so I don't really care, right? Um, you know, again, caring what people think is actually the prison that most people live in at the end of the day. And I just, I stopped living in that prison in my mid twenties. Um, but then the other side of it was, like I said, I met a, I met a woman who had three kids and I was a guy with two failed marriages and a some, somewhat radical approach to life. And, you know, I think I can, I could reasonably invite an adult to hop on that ride with me and wherever we go, we go. But if I'm going to bring kids into this, I want to make sure that I, I'm, I'm as sanitized psychologically as I, as I owe them to be. 
And that was what got me in there was that sense of responsibility with the kids. So a bit of push and a bit of pull. I, yeah. I like the, um, I like what you said beforehand about taking the elements of you that were already great and enhancing them. Cause I haven't heard that, that way of expressing yeah, it. And, That's and, a really and, cool way of thinking of it. Really and is. by the way, like I believe this as a, as a truism that like the parts of people that are great are the parts of people that are weird. And typically what makes them weird and unpleasant is actually a lot of sort of drapery that they've put around it based on negative energy, negative experiences, maybe some shame. They're trying to hide it. They contort it. They pervert it. But the reality is what's weird about us is actually like, those are the breadcrumbs that lead us to our, our wondrousness and, and to prove it. Well, not to prove it, but to sort of support that the word weird itself comes from the old English weird W Y R D, which means the ability to determine our future. Wow. I haven't the ability that. to see our destiny and actually impact it. And so weird that used, they used to burn people at the stake and call them witches because they thought they had the ability to control the future, right? Weird people are just the, the, the original witches were just people that they were the billionaires. They just didn't have the money to protect <laughs> themselves. They were the ones that didn't think like the masses or the collective, yeah, as you said exactly. before. Exactly. So as we wrap up, so, so a couple just to share with you a quick story, because I knew we were having this conversation. I was at um, Funnel Hacking Live a couple of weeks ago, and they had this kind of golden carpet thing, right? Where all these people mm -hmm. have, you know, won the awards. But your name was right at the very top, right? So I just want to make a point for anyone listening here to, um, to this and watching it on YouTube. You'll see all these records behind Jeff. They're not actually for music, are they? Oh, yeah. I forgot to turn my lights on. No, there you go. These are, I just want to finish off by just talking about the, um, the success you've created financially, actually, you know, in terms sure. of it, even though it hasn't been the driver of, of what you said, but, uh, those records are for tens of millions of dollars that have been made through, I, I assume it's all through Entra. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the way ClickFunnels gives their awards, this, this plaque behind me represents a hundred million dollars in revenue generated through a digital sales funnel. So the way they give their awards is you essentially submit a business, you show merchant statements or bank accounts, and then you have to show the funnel. So, so like I have others of these that are elsewhere in the office, like where if you build a funnel and that funnel produces a million dollars, you get one award. If it produces $10 million, you get a different award. If you, and then they have, they do increments of 25. So yeah, prior to starting Entra, and I think this is an important part of my story. Cause look, I, I realize even though money is maybe not my primary currency, it is most people's and like, even, even if it's not my main currency, I still have, I need it to buy my groceries. I can't buy my groceries with creativity. No. Um, <laughs> and so, so, you know, I'm, I'm very wired into the pragmatic reality of money. And so I'll say this prior to ever starting Entra, I had generated about, I'm actually blanking. It was either 40, I think it was $45 million. I break it all down in my book before I ever started teaching anybody how to do it, how to be an entrepreneur, so to speak. I had grossed about $45 million in business and I had personally been able to take home about 13 of it. Like I'm, I'm not, wow. those, those are my numbers, right? Like, it, you know, everybody's got their score. Since Entra, Entra has gone bananas, dude. Like, I mean, that, that you're right. That whole plaque is just for Entra in the last three years. I thought it might be. I thought it might be. Yeah, yeah. So this is, I just wanted to kind of draw that out. Like sometimes if you get obsessed and focused on the money, it's the worst thing to focus on, right? If you focus on yeah, service, it, it, we talked about this, didn't we last night? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Entra is the one business I started with zero focus on the money. There you go. How ironic, <laughs> not, how not ironic, but ironic is that? Right? I think that's, I think that's a good point to finish on, you know, cause again, yeah. it summarizes a lot of our conversation. We could have done hours of this, Jeff. We could have come oh. backwards and forwards, man. I can't believe our stories. The alignment in our stories is, is incredible. But then again, yeah. But then again, a lot of the successful entrepreneurs and leaders that I've had on this show, there is always something I've found that comes from some pain or some trauma that then ignites just an incredible journey. And, uh, yeah. and your story is very much that. Well, thanks for having me on. This has been a wonderful conversation. And I don't know if it'll be recorded or not, but I, I know we're going to have another conversation at some point. We will. Well, let's, um, let's finish up by just uh, letting uh, my audience know how they can reach you, have a look at your stuff and all that sort of thing. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of my book, partly because I worked really, really hard on it. And I like, I like when other people read it, uh, something comes of it, but it would, it would suck know, if you hated it, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. No, and, and I am proud of it. Um, you know, four months, it was basically four months locked in a room, but, uh, it, it, I think it's the, 
my book is the place to start to understand me and what I'm about in the world. And if you're thinking maybe Entra could be for me, like don't just start with a book, right? You'll, you'll know everything I, I mostly have to say if you have a long attention span, because it's, it's a book. But if you're not going to read the book, don't buy the book. Just go watch my YouTube channel because there the videos are shorter and, and it's all free. Uh, and, and Jeff Lerner official is my YouTube handle. The book is called Unlock Your Potential by Jeff Lerner. Uh, I also have a podcast called Unlock Your Potential and I'm very active all over social media at Jeff Lerner official. Awesome. We'll make sure that everyone can reach out to you in that way in the show notes. But I just want to say a personal thank you, sir, because that was fun. That was fun. Thank you for being so honest and vulnerable and open and all that sort of stuff. Because, you know, on this show, I, I believe that the right message heard at the right time by someone can change everything. And there's a number of different points I could have underlined in today's conversation. So thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.